This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast number 186, The Renaissance and Exploration. I am Hal Hammonds, and I am a Citizen of Heaven, and your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Thanks for checking in. God put in the heart of man a craving for the unknown, a need to expand his world. Ultimately, it's intended to compel him to reach for heaven itself. Earthbound humans don't know what they're missing, literally. We conclude Renaissance Month by discussing the greatest Christian explorer in his path to success, the greatest Renaissance explorer in his accidental success, the myth of my own refusal to explore new music, and the secret to pushing your luck just enough but not too much. We'll start with what I've been preaching. Surely the Apostle Paul gets the award for greatest Christian explorer. In fact, he mentions in Romans chapter 15, verse 20, that this was part of his mandate. He determined to go almost exclusively to places that had not yet heard the gospel. He did not want to build on someone else's foundation, is the way he phrases it there. It's an interesting concept, going where no gospel preacher has gone before. That may kind of give the impression that Paul is just kind of standing by a map, throwing darts and saying, I guess I'll go to here, I'll go to there. Clearly, that was not the case. At least it was not always the case. There's a very interesting exchange between the Lord and Paul in Acts chapter 16 and verse number 6 and following. They passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And after they came to Mycenae, they were trying to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. And passing by Messiah, they came to Troas, we find in verse number 8. So it was God's plan that eventually Paul go to Troas, and by way of Troas, go to Europe. But what's wrong with Asia? What's wrong with Bithynia? Why did Paul need to go in these directions instead of these other directions? Were there lost souls in Asia? Weren't there lost souls in Bithynia? Absolutely so. In fact, eventually Paul will go and preach in Asia. We know about that. He spent three years in Ephesus. But not this time. And I suppose we'll never know why. Maybe that's significant somehow. God's plans are not our plans. Oftentimes we find that the plan that we had in our mind, the plan that we had rooted in the gospel, the plan that was going to accomplish God's purposes in our lives, winds up going awry. Obviously, that doesn't mean that God has fallen asleep at the switch somehow. It simply means that we're not in charge of this process. And it very well may be that God will providentially intervene to push us in one direction instead of in another direction. I think this reminds us of what it means to be a follower of Jesus in the most literal of senses. It's all fine and good to talk about exploring, about going to new places and meeting new people and expanding the boundaries of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. We're all for that, obviously. But in our efforts to go, in our efforts to reach out, We never cease to be followers. And therefore, maybe in a literal sense and certainly in a spiritual sense, we must only go where Jesus has gone before, only where Jesus has authorized us to go. And the example of Paul and Mycenae here is a concrete example of how that works. It may not be God's plan for you to go in a certain direction or a certain other direction. He may have something else in mind. Now, the problem is we are relatively intelligent, we are motivated, we are desiring to accomplish his purposes, and sometimes our desire gets the better of us. And we wind up going in a direction that Jesus has not authorized, a place that Jesus has not gone, as it were. That's a problem. 
and all of our good intentions don't change the reality. This is rebellion. Second John verse number eight and nine reads, watch yourselves that you do not lose what you've accomplished, but that you receive a full reward. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. I'm told that this idea of going onward, going forward, is a term that is used for the tides. A transgressing sea is a sea that will not stay within its proper boundaries. It's in flood, as it were. The tide is too high, higher than it should have been. When we transgress, we are going past the point where we should go, past the point where Jesus has authorized us to go. It's all fine and good to say, but look how much we could accomplish if we went in this direction or that direction or some other direction. Maybe Jesus has a different plan. Maybe he's going to accomplish this in some other way. It's not like it's up to us, after all, to do the work. His wisdom is far greater than ours. And it's arrogant in the extreme to say, and I've heard many people say it in so many words, if we don't do this, then souls will be lost as if the salvation of any soul depends on you or me. If we believe in Jesus as the Savior of humankind, if we believe that his words are the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, we have to be content with allowing him to work in his way. And that very well may mean us not going where we would like to go. Ultimately, it's a matter of faith. Do we believe that he knows better than we do? And if the answer doesn't come back, yes, then we're not really followers of Jesus. So in your efforts to accomplish great things in his name, make sure you're working under his auspices. Make sure that you are submitting to his rule. That's what a disciple does. This is what I've been reading. I have been waiting all month to talk about Ferdinand Magellan. I am very, very excited. In fact, A World Adoned by Fire was originally in the mind of William Manchester a set of notes about the life of Magellan, so it's not surprising that it occupies about a third of his book. I'm not going to try to tell 100 pages worth of story about Magellan here, obviously, but I would like to hit the high point of the high point. In 1519, the world had generally conceded that Columbus was wrong. He assumed to his dying day that he had landed in India or nearby India, when he had sailed to what we now call America. By this point, it was obvious that he was wrong. In fact, Vasco Nunez de Balboa had climbed a mountain in Panama and seen a vast, vast ocean on the other side that we now call the Pacific. Clearly, this was a brand new landmass, which is fine as far as that goes, but for people like Magellan and the King of Spain that he was sailing for, the trick was getting around America so that they could establish better trade routes to the West in Japan and China and India, etc. So off Magellan goes, and he lands in America where the modern city of Rio de Janeiro is. Manchester assumes that his readers don't know the Southern Hemisphere as well as the Northern Hemisphere, and in my case, he's absolutely right. Maybe the case for you as well. So I'll do what he does here. Try to put it in Northern Hemisphere terms. Rio de Janeiro would be the southern equivalent of Key West, Florida. So he lands, everything's fine, he starts heading south. And his goal is to reach what we now call the Rio de la Plata. He has good information from the best sailors in the world that there is a route there to the Pacific Ocean. 
They had not traveled that route, not completely at least, but there was a huge open body of water. They were confident that if they went around that peninsula, they would find the Pacific Ocean. And so he sails to what we would now call not Cape Horn, but in fact, Montevideo, Uruguay at the Rio de la Plata, the northern equivalent of Jacksonville, Florida. He sails into the bay, explores all kinds of rivers, and eventually, after several weeks, comes back with the unavoidable conclusion, there is no Pacific Ocean here. We were wrong. And we have to emphasize this point here. Magellan has run out of information. There is absolutely no data to work from at this point. And he has a choice. He can go back where he came from and report the bad news, or he can go forward, wishing, essentially, that he could find his way around America. He chooses to go south, simply trusting that he's going to be able to make his way around this gigantic landmass. He finds a river at the northern equivalent of Baltimore, Maryland. There's no ocean there. He continues going. Imagine getting all the way to Boston, Massachusetts. Another river. Another failure. Still no ocean. He goes all the way to Halifax, Nova Scotia. His people are starting to freeze. They're running out of food. His crew, which was mutinous when they left port, is beyond mutinous at this point. And finally, word gets back, hey, this is promising. This may work out. He sails through what we now call the Straits of Magellan. And sure enough, finds the Pacific Ocean. He was right all along. Well, that may be overstating it. It's not so much that he was right. It's just that it worked out in his favor. Historians look back at Magellan as being the one more than any other person who proved that we really are living on a globe. A world that connects from east to west and from west to east. In a lot of people's minds, that makes him a hero. For me, if you pardon me for saying so, I think it makes him an idiot. Simply going forward because you expect or think or wish that it's going to turn out well, and then it happens to turn out well, that does not credit you for being a great planner or being adventurous or brave or any such thing as that. That's what we call it in religious circles, blind faith. It's what I'm accused of having. And I don't have blind faith. I reject blind faith. In fact, I condemn blind faith. We as Christians move forward based on information that we have received from people who know what they're talking about. It would be very similar, in fact, to the first half of Magellan's voyages in the Atlantic, all the way up to the Rio de la Plata. He heard testimony from reliable witnesses. He chose to believe it. He chose to follow after it having every expectation, because he knew the nature of the sources, that things were going to go well for him. That's what we do. We follow after the example of people who have seen heaven. Paul saw heaven. John saw heaven. Isaiah and Ezekiel saw heaven. Micaiah saw heaven. Elisha and Jacob got a little peek into heaven. This is not something that we made up. This is not something that we are just wishing to be true. It's not a pie-in-the-sky kind of thing. It's real. People have seen it and reported back to us about it. And the testimony is real. The testimony is reliable. We've chosen to believe it. 
And of course, beyond that, we follow after one who actually abided in heaven, one who chose to come down out of heaven and visit us here on earth and show us the way to heaven, one who gave us a map to get there. This is not blind faith. This is just regular Bible faith, believing that Jesus is who he says he is. And by the way, there is ample reason to believe that believing that the gospel writers believe what they wrote down, and there is ample reason to believe that as well. Ultimately, yes, it is a gesture of faith. It's a big, wide ocean that we're sailing across, and it's going to take a great deal of effort on our part to muster the courage to venture out simply on the word of somebody else. But the testimony that we are following after is real, and it's valid. It is worth staking your life on. I hope and pray that's exactly what you do, that you will venture out not because I told you to do it or because you think it'd be really neat to spend eternity in heaven, but because Jesus Christ is Lord and he said, I go to prepare a place for you. Believe him, follow after him and make the greatest discovery of your life. This is what I've been hearing. A little more than two years ago, I produced the music episode of this podcast. It is the, I believe, third most frequently listened to episode I've ever done. So if you are a long-term listener to this podcast, you've probably heard it. And if you have heard it, then you can testify with me here that I am, in fact, willing and to a certain degree eager to hear new music. I have a very strong reputation especially with my children, for eschewing anything that is current, anything that is recent, anything that came out after the 80s. It's not true. It's just not true. Now, I will say that they got that impression from me because I have said things that could easily be taken that way, speaking in broad generalizations about modern music and that sort of thing. The fact is there are some modern acts that I will listen to, that I eagerly listen to. But I will say this, if you have a favorite musical artist that is recent, that is current, it's going to be a bit of a sell job to get me to listen. I'll tell you what will help. If they're singing songs that I already know, just a different version of a song that I already have heard and that I like, I might get into that. If they perform in a particular style that I admire, that I appreciate, that I tend to like no matter who's doing it. Acoustical guitar, for instance, acapella, choir, etc. There's a decent chance I'll listen to that. And of course, if I get a strong recommendation from someone whose opinion I respect, that carries a lot of weight as well. On the other hand, I will show a great affinity for exploring new music that is very, very old. Music from bygone generations, and even centuries. And I think the reason that I like doing that is because I assume that music that is still being performed two or three hundred years after it was written has some credibility to it. Time shows quality. And I look at spiritual music the same way. I have nothing necessarily against the new stuff. And if I hear a favorite quartet or choir has made a recording of a great Fanny Crosby hymn or 
Francis Havergal hymn or an Isaac Watts hymn, I'll absolutely give that a listen. But again, as is the case with pop music, the limited amount of modern spiritual music that I have heard on the radio tends to be kind of one note, shallow, fuzzy, not very biblical. So you'll forgive me if I continue to go back to the well to hear the old stuff. If you have a new song that is worthy of our ancestors, by all means, bring it to my attention. There are plenty of modern songs that I really appreciate. In Christ Alone comes immediately to mind. Outstanding hymn. Speak, O Lord. Another one. Great music. Great lyric. There is something to the idea of singing to the Lord a new song, as the psalmist tells us in Psalm 96, verse 1. Yes, absolutely sing the new song. But whether it was written last week or last century, let's make sure that it's worth singing. Let's make sure that it is glorifying God. Let's make sure that it is instructing brothers and sisters in Christ. Simply having something new for the sake of having something new doesn't move the needle at all as far as I'm concerned. And if that means spending the rest of my life singing Charles Wesley hymns, I could do a whole lot worse than that. This is what I've been playing. Exploriana is an exciting game of exploration and discovery set toward the end of the 19th century. Well, according to the people who make the game, that's what it is anyway. For myself, eh, it's a game. Uh, Exciting might be a little bit of a reach. But there's uh, no question that there is a very strong theme of exploration and discovery. You're going out into the jungles looking for rare animals and rare flowers and lost explorers and all kinds of things like that. And like with any expedition, fortune favors the bold. Disaster also favors the bold, by the way. Press Your Luck is a mechanism that we enjoy in games. I tend to do pretty good at it because I am less risk-averse in board games anyway than the rest of my family. And these games tend to reward that kind of attitude. The quest for adventure demands that we push things a little bit. And how much more so if the adventure is not even earthbound? Imagine if the adventure were heaven. If we were explorers trying to get to heavenly realms. How exciting that would be. How risky that would be. Paul writes in Colossians 3 verses 1 and 2, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth. I want you to think of yourself as a heaven explorer. I want you to think of yourself as someone who is trying to reach heavenly heights and that will not be satisfied with anything less than that. Mundane pursuits, trying to find money and popularity and that sort of thing. We have no interest in that. We have our sights set higher. Now, if we're going to do this, we're going to need some help, obviously. We're going to need people who know what they're doing, people who have been there before, experts in the field, who can assist us along the way. We're going to need an enormous amount of courage because there are enemies out there who are trying to keep us from completing this action, who will destroy us for attempting this thing that we're taking upon ourselves. And we'll need a great deal of wisdom. Press your luck is obviously a risky kind of life strategy. By the very definition of things, you can push things too much. 
It's not just a matter of go, 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 go. You have to know when to stop also. That takes some wisdom. That takes some self-examination. It's a perilous trip, no question about that. And in the board game, a very common strategy and a pretty good strategy is just to push your luck indefinitely. Hope things work out. And if they don't, well, you know what? It's a relatively short game and we'll play something else next time. If we're talking about the fate of our eternal souls, that kind of attitude won't do. We don't want this to be a luck-based endeavor. And thankfully, it's not. When we are exploring spiritual realms, we are exploring while we are in the hand of God. We have confidence that we are not in this alone, that Jesus is the biggest expert there is in the field. Earlier in Colossians chapter 2, and verse 6 and 7, Paul writes, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted, and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. Firmly rooted in Jesus, having this confidence that he is here with us, that we are not the leaders of our own expedition. He is leading us, and we are simply going where he has encouraged us and even ordered us to go. We are excited about this prospect especially because we are not in charge, because Jesus is in charge, and we become rooted in him, established in him. This process becomes easier and easier for us, or it should at least, as we grow in faith and in knowledge in this one who is guiding us. That's going to supply courage for us. Jesus says on his way back home to his close friends and apostles, I am with you always, even to the end of the age in Matthew 28, verse 20. And I don't think for a minute that that fellowship, that connection is limited just to those people who were there in that moment. All those who would love his appearing, all of those who call themselves Christians are in the presence of Jesus. It is no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me, Paul says in Galatians 2, verse 20. Jesus is not only with me, he is in me. He is our advocate, John writes in 1 John 2, verse 2. If we lack wisdom, and we do, the best of us does, he has an infinite supply of wisdom. He is the wonderful counselor, as was prophesied in Isaiah 9, verse 7. By listening to him, by going where he says go, by living according to his lifestyle, accepting his standards, promoting his cause, we show that he is, in fact, the one who knows what he's talking about. And although it may be a little blow to our ego, or maybe a big one, We acknowledge that we don't know what we're talking about. Exploring spiritual realms, climbing to the heights of heaven, mountaintop experiences with Jesus are a tremendously exciting prospect. And I hope and pray that you are spending every hour of every day climbing those mountains, trying to achieve in your life spiritual goals and objectives. That's what you were born to do. It's not necessarily an easy life. In fact, it's not an easy life. There are risks involved, but it's not a luck endeavor at all. Jesus is with you, and he promises that he will continue to be with you. If you will just adhere to Jesus, if you will go where he goes, stay where he stays, you can have confidence that the crown of heaven that is laid up for all those who love his appearing, according to 2 Timothy 4 verse 8, that crown will be yours just as much as it ever was Paul's. Don't settle for anything less than that. 
You have been listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Thank you for your support. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe through your favorite podcast platform and or on YouTube. Comments, corrections, and suggestions are always welcome. Please feel free to follow me through Facebook, MeWe, Parlor, or Instagram, or check out my webpage, www.halhammonds.com. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, the Citizen of Heaven, signing off.